Sinner. <laughs> but I'm not going to fiddle in my garden for a while. <laughs> Actually, I did. I planted an azalea yesterday, the one you gave me. So if I had fallen in the course of its being planted, it would be your fault this time. <laughs> Son, son, get out in the garden with you again. He was, there, he was there, but he watched. <laughs> well, I'm very grateful for the fact that uh, my time of recuperation was such a brief one. And if there were any lasting effects, I haven't become aware of them yet. As I said to many of you individually, I learned that I don't break, I bounce. <laughs> I was hoping that Tim Jones would be here this morning, but I see he is, and I wanted to express personal appreciation to the Jones family for what they have done to this community through the Johnson City Press. I grew up with it. Tom Hodge and I grew up together in Mountain City. He stayed with it. I've lived in Atlanta, Knoxville, Chattanooga, many places, and become accustomed to the many newspapers served in these areas. But for my own personal opinion and my own personal taste, the Johnson City Press towers above them all. And, uh, you know, things like this, a family who has given so long to the building up of an institution and then have it to simply slip out of their hands into the hands of another, it must be traumatic. And I just wanted to say to him, thanks, but he's not here. You tell him I said so, will you? And when you come to such a point in your business life, I'll give you a eulogy as well. <laughs> Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, was aware of the fact that this was a first-generation church. There were no roots. There was no tradition and heritage to build upon. We today have 2,000 years of tradition out of which we can make many discernments, make decisions and choices. They didn't have that luxury. They were at the point of beginning. What made it so difficult for the church at Rome was the fact that though Christianity was an outgrowth of Judaism, it had broken ties with Judaism and was growing primarily within the Gentile community. And particularly in Rome, there were many Jews in Rome who were Christian. There were Gentiles in Rome who were Christian. And of all the Gentiles who were part of the church, they had varied religious backgrounds as well. Most everyone was religious in one form or another. Now, when you bring such a diverse group together and you begin to incorporate yourselves into a place of worship, beliefs, sharing, you have to learn how to understand one another and give and take a little. So Paul said to them, do not judge another and do not be a handicap to others in their spiritual growth. He said it to the church in the first century, but that kind of advice has not yet fully penetrated Christians in the church up until the present moment. Still a great temptation. 
to pass judgment upon others who in their religious practices and in their religious beliefs are slightly different from our own. When we pass judgment on other people, we stand in a position of blocking God's access to those persons. And we know how serious that is. Back in the 70s, I was appointed to Red Bank Church in Chattanooga. It was a church of 1,300 members on Chattanooga's busiest street, right at the foot of Signal Mountain and just five minutes from downtown. When I came to the church, I inherited a visiting minister, the visitation minister. Everybody loved Brother Lewis, and why not? He had been there for 25 years. Lots of senior ministers had come and gone, but Brother Lewis was there to see them be born, watch them be married, see their children baptized. Everybody loved him. By now he was very grandfatherly and just immediately won your heart when you got to know him. The problem was Brother Lewis now was in his 90s. He had been hired at the time of his retirement from the ministry as the visitation minister, and he loved what he was doing. He loved visiting. He didn't want to stop. The church, located as it was in such a busy place, many times he almost caused wrecks as he pulled out of the church into the street, and there, many times on Sunday there were some fender benders because of his inability to control his car. Hadn't been a minister there very long until I got a letter from his son, who was business manager at Church Street in Knoxville, begging me to get him out of that car and off the streets. But you couldn't. That was his life. Years before they had made him visitation minister emeritus, had guaranteed his salary as long as he lived, but he was no longer to perform any duties. But that didn't stop Brother Lewis. <laughs> So I'm um, getting a letter from his son and knowing that we really had to do something about it. When the board convened the next time, I shared with them the concern of his son. Not knowing really how to solve the situation, one of the members of the board, who was one of the leading laymen of the church, he was as committed to that church as anyone was or could be, was getting ready to retire from his business. And he said, we can't bring in another visitation minister because it would break his heart to think that he was being shelved. Let me take over the visitation role that he has followed, which is primarily visiting new visitors and newcomers to the city. And when he knows that one of the members of the church has taken it over, maybe he will step aside without being hurt. And so this was agreed upon. He became the lay visitor for the church. Every time the visits were made, then the visitation minister and I would sit down and he would give me information that he had gleaned on all of his visits, which would determine how I would relate to those persons and whether they needed an additional visit or not. He'd only been there a few weeks until he said, well, I had an interesting visit yesterday. We had a young couple who visited our church on Sunday, and I called upon them. They lived in an apartment complex about a half a mile from the church. He said, I was most impressed when I walked in, and I talked with her. Her husband wasn't there. I learned that he was a member of the police department in Chattanooga. 
And then I learned that they weren't married. They were just living together. And I said to them, when you get married or you stop living together, you're welcome to come back to our church. I was appalled. Certainly they didn't come back to the church and I don't know that they went to another. He did two things that Paul told him not to do. He passed judgment and he became an obstacle. There was a couple who came to Chattanooga from New York. They were born in Italy. They were Italians all the way through. By their vernacular, you would readily see that they had not become totally Americanized. Lovely, lovely couple. Elderly couple. They had come to Chattanooga because their older son had been transferred to Chattanooga. They only had two sons. At their age, they wanted to be near their son, and so they moved. They lived just a block away from the church. They were there at every service. At the early service on Sunday morning, they would be there 30 minutes early, and I inquired, why did you come so early? And they said, we love the quiet time when we can just sit and prepare ourselves for worship. The younger son came after his older brother and his parents had moved to Chattanooga and they were very clannish and so he and his wife came to Chattanooga. She was strictly New Yorker. She found it hard accustoming herself to the ways of the South. The family was Methodist. She was a member of another denomination so they quickly sought out that denomination in Chattanooga and they visited. She wore slacks to the service, being a New Yorker. She received a visit from the minister the following week who said, just wanted you to know that if you will put on a dress, you're welcome to come back to our church. <laughs> but you're no longer welcome in our church if you're going to wear pants. This was so distressing to her well, there were other factors involved, I'm sure, as well, but it was just a matter of months until the two separated. She went back to New York. He was brokenhearted, and a minister in Chattanooga had violated the two rules that Paul had laid down. He passed judgment, and he set up a barrier. Paul was eager that that not happen in the fledgling church. Try to understand one another. Realize that there is diversity. Be willing to compromise. If any of us had absolutes, we could be dogmatic. The only absolutes I have are the absolutes that all Christians hold in common. Those things that John Wesley described, that which would strike to violate these would be to strike at the heart of Christianity. Beyond that, we have our own beliefs, but they're not absolutes. For example, the mode of baptism, which is a point of separation between many religious denominations. Some believe that you have to be immersed totally in order to be baptized. Others believe that you can be sprinkled and baptism takes place in that water of being sprinkled. And denominations are built upon those two premises. We as Methodists say, take your choice. It isn't the water, it's what happens inside of which that is symbolic. But those who 
take a dogmatic stand and say this is the only way becomes a means of alienating themselves by others who believe differently. I use that only as an illustration. There are many points of contention that we deal with in trying to live together with our differing attitudes. Paul says, live in brotherhood. Don't be judgmental. Don't be a barrier to another person's faith. Now, for the first 300 years of the church, this was a real problem because, as I said in the beginning, there was no tradition, there was no heritage on which to build. What is right and what is wrong? It was until the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. If you read my book, you know that. That the church finally came down and said, these are the absolutes that we must state unequivocally. These are other beliefs that we must protect. It was a time of heresies when many people came up with varying viewpoints that were contrary to the positions of the established church. And these had to be dealt with. In order to do that, in the 5th century, the church set up what they called the Inquisition. It was a kind of church FBI. The role of the Inquisition was to seek out those persons who were heretical in their thinking and straighten them out. In the 12th century, it really got out of hand. That's when the Inquisition came to life. The Inquisitioners would seek out those people who thought differently from the church. If they did not recant, if they did not come into the fold in their thinking, then they were punished severely. John Huss was burned at the stake. Joan of Arc was burned at the stake by the Inquisition, who said, this is heretical. Thousands died by the taking of their lives, being punished because they thought differently from the status quo. Galileo, who affirmed Copernicus' theory that the sun is at the center of our universe and everything revolves around that, believing that was a contrary to the belief that we revolved, that the sun revolved around us. So the Copernican theory was held at a great distance by the church. When Galileo proved that Copernicus was right, then he was told that he could no longer pronounce that theory. And when he did, the church put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. Took away all of his freedom simply because he believed what came to be the truth. But it was contrary to the position of the church. And so the church wrestled by those who thought differently. And throughout the history of the church, there was violence visited upon those who dared to think differently and stand for beliefs that were to the contrary. Well, it sounds like I took on the Roman church pretty severely there because the Inquisition was of the Roman church. But we as Protestants didn't fare much better. The Puritans were so determined that everyone be of the same mind as the Puritan, how they punished one another, how they imprisoned those who thought differently for themselves. The Quakers particularly came under fire. And even in America where Quakers sought refuge, they were still punished because they were different in their thinking from the mainstream. 
Roger Williams fled to Rhode Island to get away from the Puritans in Massachusetts who wouldn't let him think freely. And the Baptists were born of his leadership in Rhode Island, trying to come to terms with differing point of views. The Salem witch trials? What a blot that is upon the church when church officers sat in judgment upon persons who were accused of being witches would throw them into the water. If they drowned, they weren't a witch, but if they rose to the surface, they were, and then they would be killed. <laughs> the church has struggled from the very beginning, coming to terms with people who think differently. And many ugly marks have been left behind by the action of the church. We don't see that today in the established church. I'm sure that individuals may be encouraged to leave the church if they become troublemaking in their thinking, but I don't know of any churches that are taking the lives or imprisoning or putting in stocks people who think differently or act differently. But we as individuals have not yet moved away from the temptation to condemn those who think differently than we do. I am so immature in my spiritual faith as I have strived for years and years to become mature in my spiritual thinking. I still come to times in which I question and reassess and make adjustments in my theology and in my beliefs. Deliberately, I want to grow closer to the truth. To me, there is nothing more detrimental to one's spiritual life than to have a closed mind and simply say, I refuse to evaluate it. I refuse to consider it. I refuse to let it become a part of my thinking. I reject it outright. To be open-minded will allow us to take on new attitudes and new insights to possibly strongly affirm what we already believe, but in some instances cause us to realize that we need to rethink our positions over and over again to be sure that we are not being dogmatic, but that we're just being loyal to our beliefs. Now, Paul said, do not judge another. Oftentimes, when we repeat the words of Scripture having to do with judgment, we make it an overall application where judgment must never be passed upon. We must be judges. We must judge ourselves to be sure that we are living up to the level of our abilities. To be sure that we are living true to our standards, it's so easy to slip away. Someone commented not too long ago how easy it is to slip away from going to church. This person said, I never realized that the time would come when I would find it comfortable to be away from church. But it was necessary for me to be absent on a Sunday. And the next Sunday, and after a while, I came to realize that I didn't have that compulsion to go. And then I realized that I was no longer a regular churchgoer. I caught myself as to what was happening to me. I got back into church where I belonged. 
If we do not keep an evaluation upon our spiritual life, we can easily move away from those points where our strength lies. And Methodists call it backsliding. Now, some religious groups say you can't backslide, but we believe we can because we've seen too many do it. <laughs> but we have to judge ourselves, and we need to be a severe judge on ourselves. Far more severe judging of ourselves than we would of others. We must make judgment on situations. If we didn't, how would we ever come to a consensus on what's best for society, what's best for our family, what's best for one another? We must be very conscientious in making situations personal through evaluation so that we know where really to stand and not just depend upon what others say and what others do. We made a slight mention earlier this morning about the condition of the state of Tennessee and its revenue and, and its budget problems. The time has come to make judgment, to look at the situation, to look at the pluses and the minuses, and to take a firm stand on what is the right and proper thing to do. And simply say, well, I don't know what's best, and let it stand at that. We have to know what's best, take a position for what's best, if the best is to come <clears throat> if the best is to come about. If your son-in-law gets elected governor, I'll go down and lecture you on how to straighten out the state. But we make judgments having to do with the school system in which our children are educated. We make judgments concerning the health situations, health systems of which are a part. Judgments have to be constantly made in order to keep ourselves at the forefront of how things ought to be in our society, and especially in the selection of political leaders who lead us into new regions in our political life. We must be quick, thorough in making judgments on situations. And we can judge people to the extent to which we say, this is not the right thing to do but I don't know the circumstances which prompted them to do it. It takes real spiritual maturity to come to that point of view and not condemning a person for what they've done because you don't know what lies behind that behavior. As the old Indian saying goes, don't judge another until you walk for a mile in their sandals or moccasins. We don't know all the facts and so we have no right to judge a person, but we can judge the situation. That's our prerogative and our responsibilities. How else will we deal with those things? But when we pass judgment on other people, we are intruding upon the privacy of a person's life where there are facts in play that we will never know what has brought them to that place. What we can do is disapprove of the situation and pray for the person's who are caught up in that situation. Jesus said, do not judge, for if you judge, you will be judged by the same judgment that you have meted out to others. And if you have perfect judgment, then you're violating God's right to be the judge. 
And we know that in the end, it is God who judges. No matter what our preliminary judgments may be, it is He who is the ultimate judge. And what we can do is to let Him, in time, pass judgment. While we accept people for who they are with love, without passing judgment upon them. There are so many who are hurting, but for fearful of the attitude that they would get if they sought out help. I quoted from a book that I was reading a few weeks ago on how, to, how I survived the church. And in it, he told about this woman who was on drugs, and she had been fighting drugs and couldn't get a toehold and relief from it and she had come to him and was discussing it and he said you need to go to church and, and get some spiritual strength and she said I feel bad enough now I don't want to go to the church where they'll make me feel worse the church ought to be a place of healing and not condemning and it is so easy to condemn people who are different who don't think the way we do who don't act the way we do. But it is to be Christ-like, to accept them for who they are, honor them for their beliefs when they are sincere in those beliefs, without judging or without giving approval. Just simply accepting and loving. That's what Paul was begging the early church to do. If we could make all the rules, set all the standards within our own abilities to do so, each one of us would come up with an entirely different pattern based upon our own beliefs, our own experiences, and our own convictions. That's why John Wesley did you read my book? Said, it doesn't matter what you believe. If your heart is right with God, I give you the right hand of fellowship. And so the Methodist Church has been built upon the fact we don't tell you what to believe. Believe the things that matter, the things without which Christianity itself would suffer. And those are basically the thoughts expressed in the Apostles' Creed. Beyond that, think and let think. It was Voltaire, an atheist, who said, I do not agree with a word you say, but I defend to death your right to say it. So love where we differ. Don't judge. But stand on your own principles until those principles change for the better. Don't let your own principles become vague. Be strong and specific, but allow others the privilege that you don't allow yourselves. Now, I'm hoping this is fertile ground for some good questions, and so I'm going to stop right now with plenty of time to let you get your say-so. I think you should appear on some of these talk shows on television where everybody tells everybody else about the great big mistake that they've made or how the administration's 
so inferior. All the judgments that they make, that they think they're so right that they can make these judgments. The things that you've said are very enlightening. Some of those people could use more help. <laughs> Oprah, where are you? <laughs> you know, such damage is done on programs like that. Being simplistic, passing judgment, condemning, and people who don't know better are accepted, accepted and are motivated by that sort of thing. You're exactly right. Thanks. It's very hard line to follow. Don't judge other people, but you have your standards and what you believe. So when you look at this other one that's off the wall over here, you have to respect them. And then you're thinking, what I believe is the right way, so why are they out there? Ben says you can disapprove. You can disapprove. And you're not going to change them. If they, have, if they have strong beliefs, you're not going to change their beliefs simply because you believe differently. But you'll drive a wedge in the relationship between the two. I have respect, and I'm criticized for this, I have respect for the adherence of all religions if they in sincerity are seeking out God. Now that doesn't mean they're right. I have respect, but not approval. If I were in a position where I could convince them otherwise, I would do so. But not being in that position, I'm not going to condemn them. Simply to pray for them and in their search for the truth. I believe that we as Christians have Jesus Christ that makes all the difference in the world. Take Christ out of the picture, then our religion is no different from the Jewish religion, the Muslim religion, the Hindu religion, any who have a deity that they seek to know personally. Now that's my opinion. You don't have to accept it. <laughs> and, I, and you're not to judge me on my opinion. It's, it's a difference from yours. Just pray for you. Right? That's right. Just pray for you. <laughs> Listen, I'm like Harry Emerson Fosdick. Harry Emerson Fosdick is, I differ with him in many, many critical ways. But if I have a mentor in my theology, it's Harry Emerson Fosdick, one of the most brilliant, one of the most incisive men of the 20th century. He said at the time of his retirement, when he read the sermons that he preached when he was in his 20s, he cringed and said, how could I impose such immature thoughts upon people? Experience is the best force by which we come to our convictions. You got to grow up to get a full, mature faith. But uh, to respect people who are different, ways of doing things differently, is a mark of spiritual maturity. Vince, what about the, the leaders in the church? I know, you know, it says they're held to a higher standard. And, I mean, I guess I'm like struggling with where somebody is obviously living against Christian principles in the church. I mean, I, I agree with you completely. You know, we need to be the place of redemption where people can come and get healing. On the other hand, how are you going to do that if there are no standards? Here's where I part with a lot of people in my thinking. And you hear it said repeatedly, there are not dual demands made upon the ministers, the clergy and the lay people. 
that the same is expected of all. Yes, that's true, expected of all. But if one becomes a clergyman and is ordained, he ought to accept a higher level of standards. He ought not to be willing to compromise that in the point. I firmly believe that. Uh, one of my best friends who became chair of the General Secretary of the Southeastern Conference, we were in seminary together, he started using profanity. And I said, how could you do that? He said, because it gets me closer to my layman. They feel that I'm one of them. I, I, can't, I can't take that kind of thinking. You, you have to hold standards uh, whether you expect others to measure up to those standards or not. You need to hold up those standards. I got impatient with the Pope, and I'm a great admirer of the Pope. I said, why doesn't he say that's wrong and let's stop it right now? And the fact that they let that thing drag on, it's nothing but the clergy protecting the clergy. And that's not because they're Roman Catholics, because I pastored a church, the second church I had out of seminary, where the minister had tried to seduce the young people in his church. He was so loved by that congregation that the, uh, the officials of the church went to the bishop and said, if you will get him counseling, professional counseling, we'll pay the cost of it. But what did they do? They pointed him to another church. And he got in the same trouble at that other church. Finally, he left and became a chaplain in the Marines. My first experience with dissensions versus non-dissensions was in a church. And we were in the next meeting. a student of John Wesley, though I have become to know him as well as I can because of my great admiration for him, and as a, but I don't have access to his mind beyond what others have said. But in establishing the Methodist movement, which in his mind was not to become a church, but did, there is only one thing that he denied his ministers to preach. He said, if the preacher preaches this subject, leave the church and find another one. And what do you think that is? 
predestination. He said, if any preacher preaches predestination, you get out of there and you get out of there quick. And I, I hold to that as well because I cannot accept a God who before I was born decided whether I would be saved or whether I would be uh, unsaved. That one would go to heaven and another one not. No volition of their own just by my choice. I, I, free will is the basis. But as far as I know, that's the only thing that John Wesley prohibited because the way you believe depends upon so many factors. If you're sincere in your search for truth, you will cross many highways. You'll make many discoveries. And our own nature. Now, I went to the contemporary service this morning because Mike's stepdaughter was in there. So many of you there. I couldn't worship. I applauded it. I applauded it for those who were there. But for all the years of my life, there has been a form in which I have been able to become sensitive in the great prayers of the church, in the great hymns of the church, in the form, the formality of the church. It means so much to me, and I fall into it immediately. This is all new and strange. But I'm not condemning it, because my word, the number of young people who were there this morning and how they were responding, I applaud it. I couldn't understand it. <laughs> the point that I'm making poorly <laughs> is that each of us must find our own way and be allowed to find our own way so long as it does not strike at the heart of Christianity. And I've used up all my time, and thank you so much. Thank you, Ben.